Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Join me in praying. Uh, From our side, God, your your love is profoundly reckless. Not because of who you are, but because of who we are. We are the people who have run off. We are the people who have gone astray. We are the people who have um, over and over and over and over and over again done things that you said are stupid to do. Here we are living in it. It's reckless to love people like us, but God, you do. And so from our side, what is recklessness? From your side is faithfulness. Thank you that your love, your steadfast love is faithful. And today, if it's our best day, we are no more loved than on our worst day. And today, if it's our worst day, we're coming in scraping the bottom of the barrel. We are no less loved than on our best day. Your love is steadfast. Because you are a faithful God. Thank you for that. We revel in that. We rejoice that we are so grateful for it. I pray um, that as we now turn to your word, that you would unleash it on us out of your great love for us. You would turn your word loose on us and make us who you want us to be. God, we don't want to settle for a religious meeting here in the room or online. We want to be changed. So now go to work. We ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. And everybody said amen and amen. You can grab a seat. Thank you so much for joining us in the room. And for those of you online, thank you for joining us, watching us. We're really grateful that you're here. If you um, are a first-time guest and um, can scan the QR code, uh, we would love to hear from you. If you uh, are just watching online and you want to send a text instead, if that's easier, um, you can send a text to the number that we've done for, uh, I don't know, weeks upon weeks, months upon months now. And I feel like one of those guys on the radio, the commercial guy, where you have to say the number about 158 times, but here it is. It's 833-520-0764. That's 833-520-0764. So uh, please uh, text us. Let us know uh, that you're with us. Uh, If you have any prayer requests, if you have uh, any specific needs, if you have any questions about uh, kind of the things that are rolling around in your life, please feel free to send that. We would love to do that. If you have a Bible this morning, invite you to the book of Matthew. It's chapter five, which we will engage today. Um, we started last week um, working our way into and then through on um, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in doing so, what we are finding is that Jesus is setting out this manifesto of kingdom living. And he is both inspiring us to something, but also inviting us uh, into a kind of life. And that's, that's where we're living today. And I'm excited about that. So uh, just to summarize, just to summarize last week, um, we did uh, kind of some diagnostic work on the culture and also thinking about the um, kind of reality in which we live um, and, and the, the reality that Jesus is stepping into. And this is the thing. We said that culture is marked by fear and it's marked by a selfishness and inwardness. And uh, when you bring those two things together, the cocktail that results is a superficiality. And so we stated it this way in a summary sentence that absurdity reigns and confusion makes it all look normal. So the fog... Uh, that is that is our chaotic culture uh, makes the in- incredible absurdity of our world look normal and uh, man for for that, I just say uh, boy that 's that's a, that's a rough place to be. We have so long lived with uh, absurdity and, and chaos 
an abnormality that when we see something that is normal, we think that it's abnormal because we've accepted abnormal as normal. We've just flipped this whole thing around. And so as we dive in today, I um, really want to um, think about this first section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. Uh, but before we do so, I want to uh, just let that, uh, just tell you kind of the shape. What we're after is the shape uh, of these Beatitudes. We're going to engage the content of those, uh, specifically of the teaching next week, but we're talking about the shape um, today. And uh, I I just want to, has anybody ever had this experience where you have um, missung a song lyric for so long that you don't know otherwise? Anybody who's with me there? Who's with me? And so you're, you're, you're in the car or whatever it is, listening online, whatever, and uh, that song comes on. You're like, oh, I love this song. Up goes the volume, and you're rocking along, doing awesome, and you sing that lyric wrongly, and from the back seat comes somebody sniping at you. What did you just say? Well, I said, and you fill it in, you know, watermelon, whatever, and then and they're like, that's the dumbest thing ever. That is not what the song says. And then you break out the Google machine and figure out, indeed, for 35 years, I've been singing this entire thing wrong. And maybe it's a particular artist. Maybe it's a particular song. Maybe it's a particular genre of music. You're like, I have no idea what it means. So I just kind of hum along. Um, it, it's, it's that kind of silliness, even absurdity, that I would say that we've accepted as normal. And into that, into that steps Jesus. And he opens this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with some powerful, powerful statements. But the shape of what they are determines how we not only hear the content of what they have to say, but also how we engage the rest of his teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So uh, with that in mind, I want to jump in here. I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, we're going to back up here in just a minute to the end of chapter 4 again, but let's start in 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him. I meant to say this a while ago. If you're a user of the Bible app, uh, you can open up. Our live event is working. Apparently, it wasn't earlier, but it's working now. You can find it and track along. Here we go. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad. For your reward is great in the heavens. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we jump into this, I want to, again, just... Touch on just a touch. I mean, just touch on this diagnostic work of how we have previously understood uh, this particular passage called the Beatitudes. Um, I think most people. This is the broadest swath of Christian teaching um, in the West around the Beatitudes, and I think it's dead wrong. But uh, I think most people who interact with the Beatitudes do so in one of three ways. Number one, these are these these things that Jesus has laid out. These are laudable qualities to replicate in our lives. I look at poor in spirit and mercy and mourning um, and meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being pure in heart and peacemaking and persecution. I look at all of those things as things that I'm supposed to go do. I replicate these in my lives. 
in, in my life. So I go out and I be poor in spirit. I go out and I mourn. I go out and I do these things. Um, some people see it that way. And I'm just telling you, I don't think that's anywhere close uh, to what Jesus is doing. Secondly, so, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But so, secondly, some people um, think that they are rec- these are laudable qualities to be recognized in our lives. So it's not that I have to go out and be poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit and I just need to recognize these things. I, I, I am um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I just need to recognize that. Again, I don't think that's at all what Jesus is doing. Uh, and the third one is a nuanced version of number two there. That these are results uh, of laudable qualities. These are results in these laudable qualities that, that come into our lives when the kingdom comes. So, um, you know, when Jesus shows up, boom, this is what happens to us. And again, I don't think this is anywhere close uh, to what Jesus is doing. Those, those options that are on the screen right there, they do not provide for us any consistent framework for interpreting the Beatitudes. They don't. Um, and so we have to go through all sorts of linguistic gymnastics to actually make them make sense. So I'm supposed to go out and be poor in spirit. If it's something to replicate, uh, then I, am I supposed to go out and mourn? Well, I mean, what if things are going great for me? What if it's a beautiful day outside? and think, I'm supposed to walk outside and go, God, thank you so much for a beautiful day for 60-degree weather, which is supposed to come at some point this week. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Thank you for all of this sunshine and incredible things. And I'm going to mourn now. Thank you. What? I'm supposed to go out and some sort of like find persecution in order that I can replicate this in my life. Or I'm just supposed to recognize it. Hey, this is something to recognize in my life. Well, um, I, I am meek. I'm meek. But that's not always how it's supposed to be. There are times like 2020 when meekness might be appropriate, but courage also might be appropriate. Jesus in Matthew 11, just a few chapters later, says this. Um, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. Now, he is not talking about taking up a sword or any other weapon for that matter. He's talking about you don't have to stand on your niceties, on politeness, and experience the kingdom of God. People, when they hear the kingdom of God and see the kingdom of God at work, they start pushing stuff out of the way in order to get into it. That is not meekness. So they're not qualities to recognize, and they're not results coming into our life. The results are actually on the second half, which is where we'll pick up next week. These options don't provide a consistent framework for us. And instead, they lead to a kind of thinking that is salvation by works. I'm just going to go out and be poor in spirit. If I go out and be persecuted, well, I mean, it says the kingdom of the heavens is mine. Or salvation by attitude. I'll just be meek today, today, today. Today I'm going to be meek, or today I'll be a peacemaker, or salvation by circumstance when others revile you. This is not what this is not what Jesus is doing. There's no. If we approach it in that way, and then we're going to hop off of this and get it back into the text. But if we approach it this way, what we are doing is we're creating a place in which we don't need Jesus, and we don't need grace. We just align ourselves under a new kind of law giving God a perfectly good reason to bless us. Here I am, God, being meek. So bless me. This is not what Jesus is doing. And most of us, if we grew up around church, grew up with some version of that. Now, here's my thesis, and then I want to prove it from the text. The thesis is this. In the Beatitudes, 
Jesus is emphasizing the availability of the kingdom to all sorts of people. So you take this teaching that he's going to outlay. It is not a doorway into which we enter the kingdom. And then we're like, oh, okay, now I'm supposed to live this way. Instead, instead, Jesus is emphasizing, we realize that Jesus is emphasizing the availability of the kingdom to all sorts of people. There's a thesis. Now let's go to work to prove it. I want to back up to chapter four. I want to do actually the very last point of last week's sermon again so that we get into the flow of this. And I'm putting this on record. This is the point, the very last point from last week's sermon. I'm telling you that now so that if you look back on your notes and go, he said the exact same thing. Exactly. I did. Yes, I did. Verse 23 of chapter four. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's reign. Hurricanes don't reign. Pandemics don't reign. Nothing else is in charge of this world, just God. That's good news. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and he brought him all the sick. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, even beyond the Jordan. Last week we talked about this, and this is how the sermon ended. So I just want to say, if the thesis is the availability, Jesus is emphasizing the availability of the kingdom, he starts it with this demonstration to the crowds. He demonstrates the availability of the kingdom to the crowds. So, There are three particular folks, types of people that we highlighted last week, those ostracized. We have drawn a line in the sand, so to speak, a circle, and we know that there are some people outside of that circle. In this particular case, those oppressed by demons just might qualify for that. Now, you and I, we may know somebody who's different than that, or we may have a different version of that. We may identify a different person than that, but we all have people in our lives that we say those people are outside of the kingdom and they are ostracized. They are um, kind of beyond the pale, so to speak, people outside. Again, we got a circle. They're not in it. Jesus makes the kingdom available precisely to those kind of people. And then the broken. He brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, pains, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them, the broken. And it is true that Jesus brings the kingdom to those who, uh, as it says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They recognize their brokenness and they want to be made whole. Glory, glory. It is true that he does that. But also, He makes the kingdom available not just to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He makes the kingdom available to those who are broken and have as many, maybe not many, but certainly some of us have just resigned ourselves to our brokenness. How many paralytics got carried to Jesus and were like, you guys put me down, put me back. I want to go back home. I'm tired of going to see the faith healer. I'm I'm tired of trying to find a different way here. How many epileptics were drug along there until they got to Jesus like, oh, this again? How many of us have walked into a place, uh, into a conversation, if you will, with God, a moment of prayer with God where we're like, hey, it's me again. I'm just bringing this same old confession that I've done 158 times. I know you're tired of hearing it, and frankly, I'm tired of saying it. So I've tried it all. I've prayed about it. And this is just who I am. And I'm just going to hang on until I die, knowing that I'm going to be this way. We've just resigned ourselves to our brokenness. There's a whole nother layer here, which we'll pick up in a few weeks when Jesus starts talking about anger, but 
the, the, the kind of next layer is not just those who are broken and want to be made well, not just those who are broken and want and have resigned themselves to that brokenness, but there's a, there, there's a group of people who um, are so broken and, and have resigned themselves to their brokenness that their brokenness is a part of who they are and they do not give it up because they don't know who they would be without it. Jesus offers the kingdom and makes the kingdom available to precisely those people. And lastly, those who are distant, I just point back to verse 25. Great crowds followed him from Galilee, um, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. Galilee, place of the Jews, Decapolis, the place of the Gentiles. And then you've got Jerusalem, the hub, Judea, the kind of area, the big place. And then even those folks beyond the Jordan, those folks on the other side of the tracks, on the other side of the river, those folks out there. Some of us, we prayed just a minute ago, Jarrett led us in praying for our one. Um, Some of us either live with one or have somebody in our minds that we think, man, they're too far gone. The availability of the kingdom says nobody is too far gone. Nobody. Nobody. So that's the thesis. He's emphasizing the availability of the kingdom to all sorts of people. And he starts with the crowds and he demonstrates it to the crowds. Secondly, look in verse 1 again. He declares it to his disciples. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And he moves on from there. So he, he declares it to his disciples. Now, here's what I want to do. Take just a second and just put this picture in your mind, because it's an important question about who are the disciples. So Jesus, he's done this powerful work among the crowds, and he sees the crowds. And it says in verse 1, he kind of walked himself up on the hill, and he's found a rock that he could sit on. He sits down. He's like, Whew, that was something. And then his disciples come to him, and he starts teaching them. The question is, who are the disciples? Who shows up into that conversation and who hears that particular teaching? Um, there are some options here. I just want to put them out there and tell you why I don't think they're particularly right. Uh, some people think if you grew up around church, you know that there were 12 apostles or 12 disciples in the gospels, in the accounts of Jesus' life here on the earth. Um, uh, some people think it's these 12 that, that showed up. So, um, the, the, the problem with that is there, that doesn't actually honor the text as it's written. Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew and this particular account of Jesus' life, um, he's not named until chapter 9. Now, he may very well be in the crowds. I think he probably was, and he heard this teaching, but he's not named until chapter 9. And it's at that point in chapter 9 where he becomes a follower of Jesus and joins the merry band of disciples. So if you think it's the 12, Peter, James, John, uh, Andrew, uh, Matthew, uh, Simon, Judas, so if you think it's those, we don't have any textual evidence, and it doesn't honor the text, the story as it's written, that it's those 12. And so, well, you start looking for evidence, you're like, oh, well, back in chapter 4, verse 18, um, you've got Peter and Andrew, James, and John, who are fishermen, and they're there beside, they're just fishing, and Jesus walks along, and he's like, hey, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop everything, and they follow. So it could be those four, right? And so picture in your mind those four guys. You've got these crowds, paralytics, um, uh, epileptics, and Jesus has done this miraculous work. And so now people who were brought in on mats are actually walking around carrying those mats. No super saints among them, not a single one. And yet you've got this whole crowd of bustling people, this bustling crowd of people in activity. And, and, and then Jesus walks up on the hill and he sits down on the rock and he goes, hey, hey, you four, come here, come here, come here. And he gathered those four around. He's like, hey, bless you. Now, does that sound ridiculous to you? As ridiculous as I'm looking at your faces, you watching me do that little huddle thing? 
See, there's no huddle here. Jesus is not bringing in four people to go, hey, look, how do you know that? Well, the only thing worse than preaching to four people is being one of the four people. Who's with me there? So, like, he's not trying to just some super secret huddle. In fact, we know that the crowds actually heard the teaching. Chapter 7, verse 28, 29. They heard the teaching and they said, man, we've never heard anything like this. You teach as one with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious weasels who just get up and talk most of the time. So, what are we talking about here? Let's just honor the text. Let, Let the text... Tell us the story. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So people from the crowd experienced his power and his teaching. And then, and then people from the crowd responded to his invitation. So those two steps are what we see happening in verses one and two. People from the crowd experienced his power and they heard his teaching. And then secondly, people, uh, excuse me, uh, from the crowd responded to his invitation. They moved from people who were just fans sitting in the stands. Hey, we're really excited. Jesus, okay, do it again, Jesus. That'll be awesome. To people who were fascinated by him to go, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Like, I wonder what's going to happen next. And you kind of lean in a little bit to people who stood in their stunned existence and, and, and stunned moment and said, we've never seen anything like this before. We're, we're following this guy. We're following him. In the New Testament, there is no distinction between Christians and disciples. There's a distinction between crowds and disciples, as we see here, but there's no distinction between Christians and disciples. In the Western church, we've said, oh, Christians are people who believe that Jesus died on the cross, um, and, and disciples are those who are serious about that faith. In the Bible, there's no distinction between those two. Those who believed that Jesus died on the cross or rose again were people who followed him. Otherwise, they were fans, people just sitting in the stands wondering what's going to happen next, um, and kind of excited that there's something on the scene to watch. Um, or they're fascinated, those who've leaned in a little bit and said, oh, hi, gee, I wonder what's going to occur now. Like, I, I'm kind of interested, and maybe I do need to hear some of this stuff. People who were followers, those who are the disciples, and those who have, excuse me, uh, those who heard this teaching. Yes, the crowds heard it, but those who responded and said, man, I, I am putting, I am posturing myself in trust and in willingness to follow you. That's who we're talking about here. That's, those are the disciples. That's to whom he gives this teaching. H- how did they respond? Like, how did he, they respond to this invitation? They responded with repentance. And it's a Bible word that just means you, you rethink your thinking. And you realign your life around this priority. That the kingdom is available to you. Out of the stands. Out of the, the, the realm and layer of, of fascination. And into a relationship that is, that is marked by you following him in faith. Some of you watching online or here in the room, you, you, you are at the place where you're like, man, I, I'm kind of a fan of Jesus. He does some cool stuff and says some amazing things. 
hear his invitation today to rethink your thinking about who he is and realign your life around the reality that he's offering it to you. Some of you have moved past that stage and you're kind of at that stage of fascination where you're saying, man, I've seen him do some things and um, I kind of understand a few things, but man, there's a lot more to it that I don't. And and you're leaning in a little bit and the invitation for you is to rethink your thinking and to realign your life around this priority that the kingdom is available to you. And for those who have decided to follow, the ongoing process is to rethink your thinking and to realign your life around Jesus and the availability of the kingdom that he offers. Uh, For those of us who have been praying for someone or uh, for those of us who have somebody in our life that you see them making progress, you see them moving from kind of observing to a a curiosity um, and you're just, oh God, bring them, bring them, draw them in. I just want to remind us one more time. um, Jesus has a timetable for people's transformation and it doesn't always fit on mine. Uh, Matthew, again, he probably heard this very teaching right here. He probably heard this very teaching, but he doesn't become a disciple of Jesus until Matthew chapter 9. We're still four chapters away from that. So his timetable is not always ours. And last thing I want to say to you here is that he, uh, the availability of the kingdom, he demonstrates it to the crowds and declares it to his disciples. And the last point, the last D word here, he describes it. Um, in his teaching. And I want to just highlight three particular verses. Again, we're talking about the shape of the Beatitudes, and we'll talk about the content of them next week, next Sunday. But I, I want to highlight these three. Chap- uh, chapter 5, verse 3, verse 10, verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed, it says, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Down in verse 12. Uh, and rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in the heavens. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you've been tracking along, you read along actually with the text, you may think, man, his eyesight is getting bad. Or, man, he's really annoying because he keeps putting an S on the end of heaven. He's doing that on purpose. He's telling you that now. Uh, There's an intentionality there that Jesus has. He He says it in the plural. Although none of our English translations, for some unknown reason to me, um, translated plural, it is in the plural in those cases. In fact, only six times um, in the Sermon on the Mount um, does it come in the the singular. We'll talk um, just about one particular place in a second. But in emphasizing the heavens, the heavens... He is emphasizing its availability. He is describing the availability in the teaching. So in entering into a Jewish mindset and understanding about the heavens, there were three. The, the first one, the first layer, if you will, or level of heaven is just simply the air around us. He describes it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, just a few verses later. Consider the birds of the air is how it translates. But, but literally it is consider the birds of the heaven right here. Here it is. So this, this nitrogen, oxygen, and a few other element mixture right here that you and I are breathing in, that is rubbing up against our skin. I mean, it is that close. Heaven. That first layer. Secondly, what you and I, especially you NASA people, we think about is space. The expanse, so to speak. You walk outside, uh, this is... Um, many places, it's, it is probably most poetic and maybe most famous in, um, in a, a Psalm 8. Uh, when I look at the stars, the heavens that you've made, the stars in heaven, who am I that, I'm, that you're mindful of me? What am I that you even take notice of me? 
The, the second layer of heaven is what we would call this expansive space. We walk outside, we, and the Bible frames it like the hosts of heaven, the stars of heaven. So uh, that, that's kind of the idea. That's that second level. And the third level, uh, Paul mentions it in Second um, Corinthians chapter 12, talking about himself. He says, I know a man who was caught up in the spirit, and he went to the third heaven. That's what he says. He went to the third heaven, and he saw things there that were too amazing to even tell. And so to make, me, to make sure that I kept my mouth shut, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. So I didn't start bragging about things that I didn't need to brag about. The third heaven is the throne room of God. And so when he emphasizes heavens, plural, what is he doing? He is emphasizing that the kingdom exists and rules, the rule and reign of God is active in all of those. The throne room of God, we certainly understand. The expansive space, just think about that. God is using his power to put things in place and to keep things in place. Amazing. And you and I now live in the reality that the kingdom is as close as the air that we're breathing right now. I told you six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he uses the singular heaven. And, and sometimes he does it in contrast. And so I'll just, I'll give you this as an example, as proof that this is what he's doing. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, he, he teaches people to pray. And he says this, our Father, the one, or who art, if you learned it in the King James, who art in heaven. Now, that's plural. Our Father, the one in the heavens. Certainly sitting on the throne of the cosmos. Amen and amen that our God is in control and he's the sovereign one. But he also is holding the entirety of creation together by the word of his power. And he is also as close as the air that we are breathing. Our father, the one who fills the heavens. From the molecule that is right now, right here in front of me, to the throne room of the entire cosmos. Hallowed be your name. May your name be the treasure of our lives. And then the, the first petition, may your kingdom come and your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Singular, singular. That's one of the places. So he's got our father in the heavens, the one who is, is highly exalted and nearer than our next breath. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want what's there to be in reality here. That, that's how to pray. In doing so, what Jesus is doing as he is describing it in his teaching, he is saying that the kingdom and the, the, the rule of God exists and he reigns in every level, not just some, every level of the heavens. And secondly, he is emphasizing the here-ness of the kingdom. The right hereness. <clears throat> if you grew up around church, you may have grown up with an idea that the kingdom of God is for then and there. But Jesus comes along and he says, the kingdom is available here and it is available now. We think about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and we think about it's where we're going to go when we die. And Jesus is saying, I have brought it here so you can live. I'm just couple of very quick things uh, in Matthew 4 17 repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand at hand what does at hand mean it's right here it's right here it's right here um, Luke chapter 17 Jesus says when you see these things you will know that the kingdom of God has come among you among you 
Where is among you? Then? There? Over there? Out there? At another time? No. Where is among you? Among you right now. It's like right here, right now. Probably my favorite one, the one that I rejoice certainly in the most. Um, There's a parallel passage uh, in Matthew 6 uh, where he's talking about worry. Consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. In in Luke chapter 12 uh, is the parallel passage. And he ends that by saying this. Take care, little flock. Don't be afraid. For it is your father's good pleasure. He loves this stuff. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, that makes no sense at all if we're talking about something that is yet to come and is a long way away. It makes all sorts of sense if Jesus is saying, right here, the kingdom is available. Not just so you can have something when you die, but you can have something so that you can live. Just the context of that in Luke 12, verse 32, just the context of that is about worry. Does anybody, does anybody, did anybody have any worries this week? And so Jesus is saying to you and to me, take care, little one. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and to do it right here and right now. Not just then, not just there, but right here and right now. If we think that the kingdom is then and there, what we have is, oh, Jesus can take care of me when I die. But he has no help whatsoever for me right this moment. He doesn't help me parent. He doesn't help me work through my marriage stuff. He doesn't help me in my work. He doesn't help me um, at school. He doesn't help me navigate as parents step into uh, the winter seasons of their lives. He doesn't help me understand and, and be compassionate towards my teenager. He doesn't help me in any of the things that make up my life. But boy, heaven's going to be awesome. He's enough to get me through the pearly gates, but, you know, helping me with this particular thing out in front of me. Yeah, I'll just have to navigate it on my own. That's not what Jesus is doing, folks. He makes the kingdom available right here and right now. It is as close as the air that you're breathing. And we, by rethinking our thinking and realigning our lives, we get to live in it today. So if you're here, if you're watching online and You've never given your life to Jesus. I just want to say, today could be the day. You surrender to him. Out of the stands, out of the realm of curiosity, you can surrender and become his follower today. I want to invite you to do so by putting your trust in him. If you've got other things that you want us to pray about, you want us to know about, I would love to hear from you. You send a number to the text um, or enter it in the Facebook comments if you're watching at home. Just let us know. The, the, The number 833 Five two zero zero seven six four. I want to offer a prayer for all of us here that we'd experience God in the right here and the right now. And then um, we'll have a moment of response and then I'll dismiss us. Father, now in Jesus' name and for his sake, I pray that the reality of the kingdom, the, the here-ness of the kingdom would sit down on each one of us. You should You showed it to the crowds. I pray that you would show it to us. You brought your power to bear on folks who needed it. I pray that you would bring your power to bear on us. And for anybody who's in the room and anybody who's watching online who doesn't know you, God, I pray.
that you would make the reality of your rule and the good news that you're in charge so real in their lives that they would commit their very lives to you in this moment. I believe you can do that, and I believe you want to. So God, please do it. I ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've done in pandemic response, we're going to invite you to sit if you want to sit. If you want to stand and sing, it's a great song to sing. I want to encourage you just to have moments to respond. If you need a place to pray, there's some kneeling benches up here where you can kind of create some sacred space for yourself to set, set your life, if you will, before him. I'll be back to dismiss this in just a moment, but let's let this, the reality of the availability of the kingdom, let's let it sink in together.
rescues, that his love rescues, because we're all in need. And there are people all over our worlds, all over our places, all over our neighborhoods, job sites, who need it. So let's go from here. Like what we said, what we said was true. You as a church family, you are a family of missionaries sent out to go live like Jesus reigns over everything. God bless you. Have a fantastic week. I'll be just outside these double doors. If you want to stop by and say, hey, if you have any questions, you're dismissed. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great, great week, everybody.